I suspect that many, if not most or all, all of us, have had that experience of feeling the Spirit's nudge for us to do or to say something, but then we don't do it. It might be that you're in a conversation with someone and you, you have this clear sense that you should offer to pray for them, but you don't, even though they seem open to it and the opportunity to do so never arises again. It might be that someone crosses your mind you know, through the week at a random time and you feel prompted to drop in on them or, or to give them a call, but you don't, only to find out later that they were really struggling at that time. It might be that you're dropping your car off at, at the mechanic that you've been going to for years and you know that there's a bit of an interest in faith and so you have an idea to invite them to watch church online, but you don't because it feels awkward to actually go there with them. Whatever the specifics might be, I'm sure we've all had these moments where, uh, at, where we hear and feel this prompt that we don't follow through on. And almost instantly, we feel regret that we haven't done as we were prompted. We know that we've missed an opportunity. We know that we've even disobeyed this prompt from God. You know, we've prayed for God to open doors for us to share about Him and when he does, we then fail to step through them. Well, in our passage today, from the second half of Acts chapter 8, we continue to see the ministry of Philip as he continues to share the good news about Jesus uh, wherever he has been scattered. And the story starts with Philip receiving a clear leading from God. It says, starting in verse 26, of Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, maybe if we had angels speaking to us, that we'd obey the prompting. But perhaps let's not kid ourselves, because maybe we wouldn't. I mean, I've been reading a book about Jonah recently, and when the word of the Lord came to him, he ran in the opposite direction. But Philip did obey. And as he went, he came across an Ethiopian official traveling home from Jerusalem, sitting in his chariot. And again, Philip received the Spirit's prompting. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And again, Philip obeyed. Drawing close, he heard this Ethiopian official reading from the book of Isaiah and he asked the man if he understood what he was reading. And he replied, How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? And so he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And the passage he was reading was from Isaiah 53, which speaks of a suffering servant who, like sheep, is led to the slaughter. And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And the result of this is that this official puts his faith in Jesus and is baptised before Philip is suddenly taken away by the Spirit to literally another town where he then travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Well, thankfully, Philip had heard the Spirit's prompting and responded to it. And there's much in this passage that we could look at today. 
We could look at prophecy about Jesus that's included in the Old Testament and about how it's then fulfilled in his life, death and resurrection. We could look at how the Spirit leads us and prompts us and his evidence of his leading and guiding in our lives. We could look at how the gospel, when it is shared and proclaimed, it requires a response that there's no room for neutrality about it, but demands a response from the person hearing it. And all of these are valid. And if we were to work through the text verse by verse, like like I normally would do so, we would at least touch on probably all of those. But I want to take us in a different direction today. See, I find it ironic that, that in the way that the preaching schedule has fallen out, that it's come to me to preach on this chapter over the past two weeks. So this chapter is all about sharing the good news of Jesus with people who need to hear it. And to be honest, this is something that I'm much better talking about than I am at actually doing. This is something I have much more conviction about than I have action to back it up. Like the other week, I was speaking with someone about how they feel like they passed up an opportunity that presented itself to them. They were at an activity with their kids and they got to talking to some other random mum who was there. And somehow the discussion got on to church. And there was an openness from this other mum to, to hear more, to hear about why you would go to church, to hear about what happens at church, to hear about the message that, that we're constantly sharing here. And my friend, while giving an appropriate response, reflected afterwards that she should have said and done more. And I listened to her share how she responded, though, and I thought, and, and I said, you know, I reckon I would have done the same. I don't know this person. I'm not likely to ever see them again. I wouldn't go into a major deep conversation about faith with them either. That seems like, to me, an entirely reasonable response. But it would be like Philip being asked, who is the prophet talking about? himself or someone else. And instead of using that as the opportunity to talk about Jesus, which that question was leading right up to, it would instead be Philip giving some kind of non-committal answer, perhaps suggesting that the Ethiopian look up his local church when he gets home and, and then jumping out of the chariot and going his own way. What an opportunity missed that would be. And then I listened to a podcast this week where the speaker said something to the effect that um, on the whole, churches will be like the people who lead them. (laughs) Ouch. Now, thankfully, I'm not the only one uh, or or even uh, I'm not the only or even the main pastor here. We are well led by David who is an example, great example of taking opportunities to share about Jesus in both word and deed. We also have an eldership who are incredible in this regard. We have Diane, who has such a heart for mission. Lee, who is as passionate an evangelist as anyone I know. Alastair, who always laments to me that he's not doing enough to share his faith, even though in the course of our conversation, he's told me about this person and that person and all these other people with whom he's doing so. There's Greg, who is such a 
faithful, godly witness in all he does. And Rob, who goes out of his way to show welcome and, inclu- and, and inclusion, the, the welcome and inclusion of God to all people. So maybe I'm a little bit off the hook in this regard, but I'm still profoundly challenged by these passages I've been required to preach on. And so rather than just learning more information about what the passage says, I thought I'd take a different approach today and to have more of a meditation on a question that I hope and pray will lead not just to us knowing more, but to doing more. That will lead not just to information, but to transformation of us. And the question is simply this. Why don't we, why don't I, take the opportunities that present themselves to share the good news of Jesus? Why don't I, why don't we take the opportunities that present themselves to share the good news about Jesus? And I think there's a range of responses we could give, probably pretty surface level, really. Uh, I'm an introvert and I'm uncomfortable. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer for? I don't have the time at the moment. I don't really know this person. You know, what if they actually became a Christian? I'd be nervous about how they'd go at church. And we could go on with similar responses. But I think, in fact, the real answers go deeper than those ones. I think there are at least three real reasons, deeper reasons, why we don't share the gospel as we should. And the first is that we've lost sight of the wonder of the gospel. We fail to grasp just how good this good news is. This good news of Jesus is a multifaceted gem that we could consider from many angles. So let's take a few moments to look at just a few. I wonder if you've lost sight of the good news that Jesus saves you from the judgment and wrath of God for your sin. If you've been a Christian for a long time, or if you've been brought up in a Christian home and so you've always lived, you know, Christianly, it can be easy to slip into thinking that, you know, I don't really have much sin to be saved from. And maybe that's true. But, but being a sinner before God is not so much about our morality and about how well I live. I mean, after all, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were very righteous and holy, and yet they received an absolute scolding from Jesus. See, being a sinner is about our standing before God. It's about our position before Him more than our condition, if you like. Think about a, a swimming pool. It's the wrong season for it. I, I get that. But our position is that we are in the pool. Now, some people might swim really well and other people are, you know, in the shallow end, nearly drowning. That's, that's their condition. Either way, though, they're still in the pool. And that's the same for us as sinners. No matter how well we live our lives, no matter how well we swim, no matter how moral we are, we are in the pool of sin. And so the Apostle Paul writes that as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is our position before God, that we are dead in our rebellion 
and our failure. And so, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, God's wrath is the appropriate response of a holy and righteous God to sinners. I mean, we've all been busted by, by a parent, a teacher, a boss, a spouse, a coach when we've done the wrong thing. However much we, however much we might not like it, we can appreciate that it's a fair and appropriate response for our, for our actions infinitely magnify that and that's what we deserve from God and so understanding that reality we're ready to hear the wonder of the good news but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions it is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that is expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's not even that God simply chose not to punish us. It's that he elevated us to a place in heaven with him. That's what Jesus did for us by dying in our place and taking God's wrath upon our behalf. And so we see again, as we consider this, we see again the incomparable riches of his grace. Have you lost sight of this? Have you lost sight of the good news that when you were lost, Jesus sought you out and brought you home? The prophet Isaiah describes the plight of humanity like this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. We've done that. We've turned to our own way. We've rejected God and his good, loving rule over us. And we've set ourselves up as the master of our lives. But the result of this is that we've gone astray and we've got lost. In the book of Judges, the, the summary assessment of Israel was this, that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Each turned to their own way. And if you read Judges, the result was disastrous. And so Jesus tells us a series of stories of what this state of being lost, of what it looks like for us to go our own way. He tells a series of these stories in Luke 15. What it looks like is it, it looks like a sheep that has strayed away from the flock and is now lost and alone at risk and vulnerable. It looks like a precious silver coin that someone needs to live off that has gone missing. And it looks like a son who rejects his father's love, leaves home, squanders his wealth living just how he chooses, runs out of friends as he runs out of money and ends up desperate and far from home. And then Jesus says that the shepherd left the 99 sheep that he still had you know, under his supervision and he went looking for the one that had strayed and finding it, picked it up, put it on his shoulders and carried it home. 
He tells us that, that the woman who lost her coin searches high and low, looking in every nook and cranny, lifting up furniture, taking everything off the shelves until she found that missing coin. And he says that the young man, when he came to his senses, returned home and there he was welcomed into his father's embrace and love and acceptance. We too were lost. We had gone our own way, doing as we saw fit. You know, even our, our good moral Christian living is often a means of us doing our life on our own and it ends up with us being far away from home with God. But God in His love and in His grace has sought us out. We were lost but now found. We were dead but now alive. Have you lost sight of this? And have you lost sight of the good news that when you were unable to do anything to save yourself, God in Christ did it for you. How does a dead person bring themselves back to life? How does a lost person find their way again? They don't on their own behalf. It takes someone outside of the situation to act on their behalf for them. And that's exactly what we have experienced with Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. While we were still powerless. Think about this in your home. If the power grid goes down, it doesn't matter how many times you check the fuse box. It doesn't matter how many times you flick the light switch. You're powerless. Nothing's going on. And there's nothing that you can do about it either. You are dependent on another outside force. You're dependent on the electricity company to sort it out. That was our state in our sin, except far worse. Not only were we unable to do anything about our situation, there was nothing about us to motivate God to act on our behalf. I mean, at least the electricity company, we, they, they get our, our payment every month or every quarter or whatever. But, but God had, there was nothing intrinsically about us that would motivate God to do so. We were ungodly. We were still in our sin with nothing to move God to act. Nothing that is except for his love. We were powerless and we were sinners. And in that state, as unworthy as we were, God loved us and Christ died for us. What we were powerless to do, he did for us. Have you lost sight of this? We could go on in considering the wonder of the gospel, that we've been brought into the family of God, that we have been reconciled from being enemies to being beloved children. We could consider that we've been set free from our bondage to sin, that we no longer have to sin and that it doesn't have power over us anymore and instead we can live 
the life that God has for us. We could consider that we have been given a new life, that we've been given Christ's life and that we have his spirit now living within us, working within us. And as this deposit guaranteeing a future that is to come. We could consider the wonder of that future, of that hope that we have. We could consider so much more of these pressure, of so many different facets of this precious jewel of the gospel. But I want to suggest that perhaps it is because we have lost sight of the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ, that that's why we don't share the good news like we should. I'll have to move more quickly now. But another reason perhaps why we don't share the good news of Jesus is that we don't care enough about other people. Now, saying it that bluntly, that has a real sting to it, doesn't it? Because, and we certainly don't want that to be true. I mean, after all, if we, were, if we were on a cruise ship, for instance, and we saw someone fall overboard, we'd grab the lifesaver and throw it out to them as quick as we could, wouldn't we? Well, if we would do that, why are we not as concerned? You know, if we would do that to save someone's life, why are we not as concerned about someone's eternal life? I said earlier, I've been reading this book on Jonah. Jonah is sent by God to preach to the people of Nineveh, telling, to tell them of God's impending judgment of them. Well, Jonah doesn't want to go. That's why he goes in the opposite direction. But, but it's interesting why he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go because he knows that God will be gracious to them if they repent. And that's then exactly what happens. They turn from their sin and Jonah gets in an absolute mood about it, especially once the tree that he's just finding some shade under, especially once that tree dies. And the Lord said to him, you have been concerned about this plant. Even though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And you have been so concerned about that. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. God says he has great concern for Nineveh that it's a city full of people who are ignorant and who are in need of saving. It's that same concern that led him to exercise his saving grace on their behalf. Should we not also have such a concern for others? Maybe we don't share the good news of salvation because we actually don't care enough about the state of other people. Lastly, I wonder if the reason why we don't share the good news is because we don't really believe in the power of the gospel to save. And I, I get it. I get this one. The, the message of the cross, it really is foolishness. We start talking about it with someone and we suddenly hear again just how crazy a message it is. And so we, we pull back from sharing. 
We think there's no way that they're going to believe this. There's no way this message is going to change and affect their lives. And so we hold back. And we may not be as conscious of it as that, but it's there nonetheless. We find ourselves much more in the first half of 1 Corinthians 1.18 than in the second half. Paul says there that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says elsewhere that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God to save. Do we believe that? We look at the good news and we look at the people in front of us and we doubt the good news' power to be able to do anything in their lives. We doubt our ability to communicate it convincingly. We wonder what will it take for this person to actually believe this message. And to all this, Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. (laughs) All things are possible with God. Maybe we don't share the good news because we don't really believe in its power to save. We have gone far afield from Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian official. But my hope and prayer is that as we've done so, that we'll be drawn to become more like Philip in his willingness to respond to those spirit promptings, to share the good news about Jesus wherever and however God provides us the opportunity for us to do so. My hope is that as we've looked at God's word and as we've reflected on our own lives, that a mirror has been held up to us so that we can not just be hearers of the word, but that we might be doers of it that we might just not have more information about what Acts 8 has to say, but that we'd experience the Spirit's transformation of us to help us actually live it out. And so I think our appropriate response as we close is is twofold. It's one, it's a response of repentance and of affirmation. To repent of our attitudes and our inaction and to also affirm the truths that we have considered today. So would you join with me as I pray for us? And I do mean us because I need to respond in these ways so much as much as the next person. So let's, let's pray. God, we again, would just come and we thank you for your word. Your word that speaks to us because it's living and active. It is, it is, yes, words that have been written down in a book, but it is your words that are spoken to us, your people. And that's your spirit that lives within us, that works through it to change us to be more and more like your son. And I pray that that's the outcome of our time in your word today, God. We want to repent from being hard-hearted, blasé about the good news 
of Jesus. God, we can become so familiar with it, especially if it's what we've grown up with, if it's what we've had all of our lives. We make light of this glorious and precious gift that you have given to us and we want to repent from that, God. We want to repent from our callousness towards the the plight of the people around us, whether we know them well or only distantly and remotely. God, you have such a great concern. You so love the world that you gave your one and only son. And we, God, um, don't even want to open our mouths. And so we repent from this, God. We repent from not being heartbroken about uh, the current and eternal state of the people before us. And we want to repent too, God, of our doubt about the gospel. Man, if the gospel couldn't save, none of us would be here. And so we know it works. We know it's powerful and yet we doubt and yet we question. We rely more on our ability to to sell it than we do on your power to enact it. And so then, God, we ask your forgiveness. May we turn from this. May you transform us from the inside out, God. And instead, God, we pray, give us eyes to see the wonder of the gospel and hearts to experience it afresh because we do affirm again how glorious it is. We were lost and now saved, now found. We were dead and now alive. We were in bondage and now set free. We were under wrath and now forgiven. We were far from home and you have welcomed us in as your beloved children. God, may the wonder of it strike us afresh, we pray. God, we ask too that you'll give us eyes to see the precious value of people and hearts to act on it. Because we want to affirm, just as you did to Jonah, that this multitude of people who are ignorant of their, of their sin, ignorant of you, God, that they are in desperate need of you, that they are loved by you. And God, we pray that they would be loved by us. May we see them not just, you know, a distant neighbour, an annoying work colleague, a random encounter at the supermarket, but may we see them as you see them, as precious in your sight, and may we act then accordingly. And we pray too, God, give us faith to believe in the power of the gospel and mouths and lives to speak it out. As I said earlier, we have been saved by the power of the gospel. We know it's transforming power in our lives. May we not be blind to that. May we not doubt it in uh, someone else's life. But instead, knowing that what we can't do, you can do because you're God 
and what's impossible with us is possible with you. May we then um, trust in that. May we speak in faith. May we live in faith. And may we see your gospel do its powerful, transforming, amazing thing in our lives, God, and in the lives of others. We thank you for bringing this word to us today. A word that confronts us, but a word that moves us to be that much more like you. And so we pray that we would be so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.